Welcome back to the Money Under the Mattress podcast. My name is Jake. My co-host is Mitch. Today, we'll be discussing why diversification can be misleading. How are you doing today, Jake? Oh, not bad. How about yourself, Mitch? Uh, not too bad. I uh, just got off work. And uh, before that, I was reading Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. Uh, it's actually a pretty excellent book, honestly. They uh, go through a wide variety of ideas. Um revolving around uh, the psychology of investing as well as finance in general. Nice. I've been reading lately um, the house that Jack Ma built by Duncan Clark. Mm, really I'm getting book. that in. I'm getting that in soon here. So I'll be able to uh, be able to have me have a podcast possibly on uh, Alibaba. Um, so today we'll be talking about how diversification is misleading. Uh, do you want to start off? and explain to the listener why it can be misleading. Okay. So um, in order to get outsized returns, there's a number of investors that agree with this, especially, you know, um, very, very, very great investors will really agree with this. And why that is, is in order to get outsized returns, you need to make big bets on companies, you know, really, really well. Because if you're basically, basically, if you want to beat the market, you have to um, not be the market, if that makes sense. So basically, if you're going to have like a hundred different stocks in your portfolio, the odds of you beating the market is very slim. Because the odds that you're able to keep up with all hundred companies is pretty slim, especially if you have like a job other than, you know, managing your money, because even some of these fund managers who um, run these portfolios that are close to like an index in the amount of stocks they own, they have a hard time even keeping up with it. And um, Charlie Munger agrees with this statement um, that less is more. <laughs> uh, Joel Greenblatt has agreed with it. Uh, Monish Popra agrees with it. Warren Buffett agrees with it. And like countless other investors agree with it. Mm -hmm. And the way I look at it is you pick a handful of companies that you really understand and you watch those companies. So currently my portfolio, I believe I have um, probably about eight companies and my top position is about 35% of my portfolio. And some might think, wow, like that's not many, that's not many companies. And they've probably heard, you know, the industry saying, Diversify, diversify, diversify. But diversification is for people that don't know what they're doing or that don't want to put any effort into um, handpicking stocks because people that want to handpick stocks and they pick more than like, you know, let's say 15 or 20, you're probably not going to do better than the market. You're probably just better putting your money into an S&P 500 fund. Wouldn't you agree, Mitch? Yeah. Um, I mean, it goes off that, that quote of, I believe, Buffett, says that it's diversification is for idiots. He doesn't mean yeah. idiots. He just means that it's the know-nothing investor. Um, you know, diversification is for the know-nothing investor that has really no finance background, that isn't reading 10Ks daily, that isn't reading uh, finance books or listening to earning calls and stuff like that, that doesn't have the time for it. But if you have the time for it and you are um, doing all those things, especially if you're a fund manager, um, working eight, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, yeah, you shouldn't really be diversified in my opinion. 
No. And like you have Manish Paprai, who in his book called The Dondo Investor, he talks about few bets, big bets, and infrequent bets. And you'll even see um, Warren Buffett probably has about, you know, 60 to 80 stocks in his portfolio. I think it's around there. But his top position makes up 40% of his money. And if you looked, I guarantee that the top 10 positions are like 80% or 75% of his portfolio. So yes, he does have some smaller um, company or smaller uh, proportion, or sorry, he has uh, more than just, yeah, sizing. Like he has more than just 10 companies, but the ones that are at the bottom of the list are quite small. And I guess you can kind of think of it as like a starter position to most people's portfolios, but his portfolio, it's probably Tedder Todd running that part because he does have two other guys that helps him run that portfolio. And they each have, I think like 10 billion each or 20 billion. Yeah, I, think they're playing, run. I think they're playing with 10 billion each. Last time I heard it was 10. It could be yeah. more now. Um, and they're very, very great investors. And yeah. what's funny is with most people, we've already mentioned this on other podcasts or other episodes, I believe, but with most um, 13Fs, we'll look at what the great investors are doing and we'll look at like what their highest conviction bets are. So basically the ones that are, basically the one that takes up most of the portfolio. So they're number one in size. And with um, with Buffett and Berkshire, we'll usually look at their smaller positions because that's the ones that um, are typically smaller in market cap and are being run by uh, um Ted and Todd. And as you know, the bigger you get, the bigger your fund gets, the harder it is to get outsize returns. And um, yeah, so like basically when you're running $300 billion, it's pretty hard to uh, do better than the market because you only have, you know, 50 stocks probably in the whole US market that you can invest in that will actually move the needle where if you're running like a million dollars or even like less than less than a billion dollars you have a lot more options so basically you should be able to do a lot better um when you have one million dollars and you can when you have one billion dollars or a hundred billion dollars yeah and there's such thing as called um is it diversification like what is it that diversification diversification that's exactly what it is and i think that's what peter lynch talks about right diversification yeah is it even businesses will die he doesn't even just talk about that for like um, uh, individual companies. Like some businesses will like start to get like into that diversification where they want to keep growing and, you know, they can say to their buddies at the clubs, like the clubhouses mm. that they're, that their members at that, uh, yeah, my company, like I'm a CEO of a company that now does this amount in billions in revenue where um, they're not really increasing per share value. And they're just trying to, they're basically just carrying around a lot of bloat that just doesn't, really move the needle for companies where, you know, if you have a really good company that's earning like 15, 20% return on capital, um, but you have no other reinvestment options, it's better just issue a dividend or buy back stock or find some other way than just acquire a bunch of other, be a serial acquire a bunch of shitty businesses. Right. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's another thing. When Lynch talks about the diversification, he usually talks about the individual businesses that will go from, let's say if they're strictly, um, you know, they're strictly a paper business. Like, you know, if they're paper manufacturer uh, and then they start going into like making book bags, like just like a random out of the ballpark type thing just to diversify where they have no real competitive advantage. 
um, that they're just kind of throwing money at. So that's how they can diversify. Um, I'm not sure exactly who talked about it also, but after about 30 holdings, um, you kind of start diversifying. Um, and yeah, I, I don't think anybody that is running under a billion dollars, um, at least they, they should at least have under 20 holdings. I think if you have over 20 holdings um, and you're an active investor, um, there's no point. Yeah, it's, it's, it comes to the point where the more stocks you own, I think it was John Huber. I was reading a thing on John Huber, who's Sabre Capital, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And he's really um, yeah, he's, he's a very great investor and he's a very smart, intelligent guy. Go check out his website. You mentioned that in the last podcast. But anyways, he, he was talking about how like um, batting average and slugger percentage and stuff like that, kind of like with a baseball analogy where if you hit, you have to find your, your hitting rate and uh, you got to position your portfolio to where basically the more stocks that you own, the harder it is to have a good hitting percentage because you have to be right on more stocks. I think it was him that was talking about this. And after a while, there's just not that many good ideas. And mm-hmm. basically it's a lot harder to do. It's Don't get me wrong you'll have a lot less chance of losing your principal if you own like a hundred stocks instead of like five stocks. Like you'll have a lot, like it'll be a lot more, typically a lot more smooth and less bumpy and less risk of, you know, default. It'll be less volatile. Less volatile for sure. But at the same time, it's a lot harder to outperform because you have to be right on many more positions where if you just have, you know, I don't know, we say five, but let's say 10, even 15 companies. It's a lot easier to concentrate on each individual company and make sure you're picking the very best ideas that you have and you'll have the best chance of actually getting outsized returns. And that's the whole point. Like if you're going to, if you want to basically beat the market, you got to do something different than what the market does. And what the market does is, you know, we'll say the SP 500 and invest in the 500 biggest companies in America. So what you got to do is you either got to devote your whole life and it be your main job And sure, you can, if you run a huge fund, have 100 stocks and you might beat the market. Or you'd be like us, we have day jobs and pick a few businesses that we know, understand, and we like, buy them at great prices and, you know, hopefully beat the market. But you have a great, like a a far greater chance to beat the market with a more condensed portfolio. Yeah. And yeah, like I find even for myself, like I think, how many shares do I have? I own seven holdings right now. And I find even that those seven holdings at least take up probably 30% of my time um, when I'm, you know, looking at investments um, or reading about them. I'm always reading up on my companies that I currently own because it's a lot easier to buy a company than to sell a company. And so I'm always worried about, you know, is the business changing drastically enough that I should be selling out based on the fact that it's fundamentals have changed or, whatever it might be. But yeah, like, I mean, if I had 15 holdings, I think I'd have pretty well 90% of my time just worrying about that. Um, you know, so where most of my time should be allocated to looking for new investments, for looking for, for new capital uh, to deploy. Um, I also find this can be really weird, but I also find that um, the less you look for new investments, the more that come to you. 
Yeah, exactly. It's right. Really it's- strange. And I've heard other investors talk about this too. But well, like some of the great investors like Warren Buffett, like in his early day, would be flipping through the Moody's manual looking for these like cigar butt companies, like selling below net current assets, blah, 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 blah. But when it comes to like great like opportunities investments, I find they just kind of show up. Like with Boston Omaha, one day I was watching a YouTube video and I came across it. And then Mitch and I went down to the local coffee shop on our week break of school. And we just mm-hmm. went there every day and read 10 Ks and looked at a couple other publications. And we came to the, <laughs> um, the yeah, we came to a fast conclusion on it. And then we just kept on reading up just, on that for the, like the following week. Um, and then just made an investment. Made an investment and it was turned out so far to be a pretty good investment. And, uh, and then like another one was Seritage and, you know, that was a clone from Monish and a couple other guys. Mm-hmm. And then um, Equitable Bank, we, what happened we just, one day is, actually what's funny is like a year or two, before you invest in it, Mitch told me about this great savings account in Canada, had no fees, able to transfer money, without any, you know, fees and, it wasn't restricted. You didn't have to hold it in like a GIC or something. And you're also getting good percent, uh, percentage on it, return interest. And I was like, okay, sweet. So I got it, blah, blah. Anyways, then we kind of got into investing, whatever. And <laughs> I looked at it as an investment and a few metrics I looked at, I was like, wow, like, this is like a really good investment. It's really cheap too. And like, we're going through COVID at the time and you know, it's really down there. So I bought some, Mitch wasn't quite convinced. He wasn't really into it yet. And then I kept bugging Mitch, like just bugging him and bugging him because before on the Seritage one, he bring it to my attention and he told me about like, yeah, you got to get into Seritage, like oh, big guys are in it. It makes a lot of sense. We read up on it and it made sense. But on Equal Bank, I was like, Mitch, like you got to, you got to get, you got to get into this too, man. Anyways. And then he finally got into it. Still a really good price. He got into it. And yeah, like I, I just find every good investment comes just, it just comes across to you like, somehow and then it'll it'll just be like a random thing right like it's more like okay yeah we obviously look at screeners you know i probably look at a screener at least maybe a couple times a month would you still look at screeners jake no you don't look at any screeners okay so i look at a screener a couple every couple months or maybe a couple times a month um depending on how dry i am on investment ideas or if i'm just kind of interested in learning up on a new business um because i have had one investment through a screener, which was Exantis Capital Corp. Um, it was a quick investment. I think I was in it for six months, maybe nine months. Um, it doubled well, though. Yeah, it doubled. And I did what I wanted it to do. It was it was pretty well cigar butt. Um, but yeah, like for the most part with, with our investments, we just um, kind of came up on them um, either through the Peter Lynch way, which is just kind of you know, like iRobot was another Peter Lynch type of investment. It's just, that was such a weird it, one. <laughs> you're either a customer of it or you're going through a shopping mall, you see it, or somebody has the product that you do know or you bought the product recently. Um, yeah, and then you just look them up to see if they're a public corporation. And uh, if they are, that then. Actually... Hey, Mitch, I know it's kind of off topic, but you've seen like GMC or uh, what's it called? AMC today, eh? Like yeah. It went up 100%. Well, yep. um, there's a lot of chat that I noticed um, that iRobot might get onto the meme potentially. That yeah, because it was a high short interest, correct? It wasn't the time when I owned uh, iRobot. It uh, it like tripled really quick because it, it was sh- high short interest. It's around the same time as GME and that. Yeah, back in like January or whenever it was. That I can't remember. Anyways, but um, yeah, like I said, like, that might be another like me like potential meme stop 
Same with Short Seritage. Seritage had a higher short interest, and that was up a little bit today, nice. too. It was up around 7%. That's actually been doing pretty well lately. Like, it's almost back to its original high there a couple months mm-hmm. ago. Back there. Yeah. Like, it's almost at 20, or it did hit 20 today, didn't it? Yeah, it just barely hit 20 today, I think. Um, so, yeah, just, like, looking at our other investments, you know, like Berkshire. We read up on Buffett, and, you know, we're just Buffettologists. And so... It's just a no-brainer. No, just no-brainer. Um, that's basically if you want to buy the equivalent of like an index that's probably going to do better over time Berkshire they have so many it's so diversified because sure like their equity portfolio which is like 300 billion dollars 40 percent of that is in Apple but like they own a bunch of other companies and they actually own like um, companies that aren't like exchange traded like they have private you know companies within the actual company Yes, subsidiaries. So, subsidiaries, yeah, I guess you call it subsidiaries. But, um, yeah, like they have like 80 other subsidiaries or something along the lines of that. So, it's a pretty diversified business through a bunch of different industries. And you get top notch, top notch management looking after it. And, I mean, I know Buffett and Munger are getting up there in age. We've been saying that for a long time. And everyone else has been saying that for a very long time. But the people that are going to um, succeed them are high quality managers as well and stewardess of capital, you know, like you have um, Ajit Jain running insurance, Greg Abel running the non-insurance part of the business. Then you also have Ted and Todd running the uh, security side. I mean, and then you actually have the individual um, CEOs within the subsidiaries that are top notch, Buffett picked them. So I know everyone's going to miss Buffett and, you know, Buffett's a once in a probably, I don't know. I I was going to say once in a hundred years, but probably once in forever type of person in investing and, you know, in life. But uh, I I think Berkshire is still going to be a great investment going forward. And it goes back to the diversification and it talks about, um, you know, talking about Munger's personal portfolio, the Munger family portfolio. Uh, they're yeah. in three investments. Mm. They've been in three investments for a long time. Um, they're in Berkshire, Costco, and then Lee Liu's uh, Himalaya Capital uh, Fund. Um, and so, you know, within those, there might be, they're, they're well diversified through um, both Lee Liu. Eh, Lee Liu's got 10 holdings, give or take, probably. Uh, and then Berkshire's got about 60 or so um but yeah like i think yeah i think there's no real reason to over diversify i think there is a reason to diversify like i don't know if i'd really want to hold just like just seritage or just eq bank personally um but i think i'd be okay with just holding berkshire i'd be okay with just owning berkshire um or just owning like uh you know, just have my capital with a fund manager that has multiple holdings. Um, I, I, I know this is going to sound really crazy, but um, I'd be okay with owning, like stepping up the, stepping up Bubba to like 50% of my portfolio, I think. Yeah, but they're also well diversified within that. But you still have the Chinese risk of, delisting and other things where it's not just, you know, this is an American corporation. And if this is going to fail, it's going to be business risk. 
it's it's like other types of risk. So it, it's it's hard. Like if Bubba was uh so right now it's about 30 or 35 percent of my portfolio. If Bubba was an American company, I would probably be like almost all in. I know that yeah, sounds me, crazy. Me I'd probably I'd probably no way 60 percent Bubba. No, I'd be a hundred percent. That sounds crazy, but that'd be a hundred percent in right now. Like there's no way it wouldn't be. But at the same time, if it's an American company, Bubba wouldn't be any good. But, but I guess pretty Amazon much over here. I guess pretty much just like to summarize is like if you're a know nothing investor, okay, keep diversifying. Um, but yeah, don't be buying more than at least 20 stocks um, for sure. Um, I think just holding a maybe one to two ETFs, uh, index fund ETFs, you're, you're well off there. Have like a core holding like an ETF and then have a couple satellite holdings, like um, a few like smaller percentage bets in your portfolio. Like yeah, compensate like the follow. Yeah. For fun. But if uh, you're if you're not gonna put the effort in and not gonna like devote a decent amount of time, don't try to pick individual stocks. Just, no, just don't. It's the rest of a disaster. And before like we're like we finish up here, uh can I say a little bit something about Nick Sleep? Yep. Okay, so um Nick Sleep. He and he's um we came across him through Manish Papra, right? Mm-hmm. I think. Anyways, and he is is he British? Right? He's from he's the British. UK. He's from yeah. the UK somewhere. Anyways, and uh, he ran Nomad Partnership. Him in Kai Zakaria. I don't know how to spell it. Yeah, Ka- Kai Zachariah, but I think they just call him Zach. Kai Zachariah. Oh, okay, Kai Zachariah. Anyways, and um, yeah, you've read the partnership letters now as well, eh? Yeah, I'm pretty much done them now. I have a few more okay. just to look at, but I'm pretty well through them all. Yeah, so um, basically, they opened up this fund, and for the first couple of years, it was ran under uh, Marathon Management, and then somehow um, Marathon Management allowed them to spin it out and go on their own. And um, anyways, they ran this thing called um, OMAP Partnership, and during 2001 to 2013, they returned 921% versus 117% for the MSCI World Index. It like blew it away. They had like 20% odd returns. And the reason why they stopped in 2013 was because they had too much of the portfolio in two, like in a, only in a few stocks. And they weren't diversified enough for like the UK regulators or wherever they were there. And what happened is they said, you know, I'm not going to like diversify. So they closed on the fund, gave everyone back their money. And before they gave everyone back their money or during it, what they said was, listen here, guys, at least this is what Nick did. Caius, I think, went into six stocks, but Nick only went into three. Basically, what Nick did is he put, I believe it was pretty evenly into one third of Amazon, one third of Costco, and one third of Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. And for a while, he'd been working on um, scale economy shared, I believe the term is called, where essentially, if you guys didn't know anything about about economies of scale, where um, as companies grow, they get scale advantages. And instead of the company keeping that profit for themselves, they would um, give it back to the um, customers, allowing it to um, deepen their moat and allow it to last longer. 
And basically, um, you can go on and search up Nick Sleep Costco write up, and there's a write up online about Nick Sleep, and he talks about this back in the early 2000s. But anyways, he he ended up buying um, Costco, uh, Berkshire, and Amazon, for, and it was like 2014 when he bought them. And back then, Amazon was like 320 to $350 a share when he bought it. Now it's at 3200 to 3500 you know, like in that area. So he like 10X his money on that alone since 2014. And then he also bought Berkshire Hathaway and Costco. And if, you know, like, even though Berkshire Hathaway and Costco did okay, like they were like 14, 15%, I think Costco, or Berkshire was 14 to 15%, and then Costco did, I think, um, about 17% if you had the dividend in there around that range over those years from 2014 to now. Well, you know, Amazon did 10X. So basically all it took was that one big investment for him to get the outsized returns where if he was trying to, and he essentially didn't have to pay any tax because he just held them. I believe Manish talks about how eventually Amazon got to like 80 or 90% or like 80% of his portfolio or 70% portfolio. And he trimmed it and um, like in half or something and then put into a fourth position. I can't remember what it was called though. Do you know what the fourth position you put into in like 2019, 2020? Uh, ASOS, ASOS. ASOS. And I think that company did pretty well, it was pretty good as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, now <laughs> that just goes to show that um, you invest in a couple of companies that uh, you know really well. And uh, obviously this um, scale economy shared model is uh definitely works because i mean costco has it i think costco is the best one for it um obviously amazon had better growth than costco but costco had more of a skills economy shared type of structure to it and i berkshire had businesses within it that kind of did that like uh, geico and stuff like that but uh yeah i think nick sleep did well with uh not over diversifying, sticking to his circle of competence uh, that we talk about all the time. Um, and then just placing big bets and letting them ride out. Um, especially with the Amazon bet as well as Costco. So, oh, sorry. For, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure if I got calculated it right, I think he made like 26% or like something. Like I, I calculated at one point, and it depends on when you start and when you end, but he made like, I think over 25% annual returns for like those six or seven years after you shut down the fund. And if people would have just um, followed them, they would have done just as good. And also I believe um, one of the endowment funds for like a college or I don't know, it was something anyways, Manish was talking about um, contacted, contacted Manish saying, did you hear Nick can't um, uh, run his fund anymore? Are you shutting down the fund? And uh, Manish said something about how, um, yeah, but Nick told you what to do. He said, just put your money into those three companies. And they said, no, like, um, we can't do that. Like, due to diversification, like, we have to invest it within fund that will do it for us. So when he said, like, if I set up a fund for you right now <laughs> and charge you a fee and put in those exact three, exact three things that Nick told you put in, will you let me? And I can't remember what he said after that. But, like, it just goes to show that um, the government hates um, funds that don't diversify. So obviously there is a substantial risk in owning only three companies, 
And, you know, like if me and you ever ran a fund, we probably wouldn't have three, more than likely wouldn't have three companies. Eh? Like what, what do you think we'd run it with? I know money's for the longest we'd time. Probably, we'd probably stick around 10. Yeah, because money's for the longest time would just do 10 bets at 10% each. I think that's what he still does. He still, he still does that. But, yeah. But with this new compounder framework, um, with like great businesses and stuff, I, I think that you might have to uh, change it up a bit be, because there won't be 10 great compounders that will work where before he was investing in, you know, 10 discounted pies that uh, had a good chance of working and you probably couldn't lose much money. But there was a lot more of them, especially during the time that he started doing that. Because apparently I heard that when he first started investing before he opened up his fund in 99 or whatever year it was from 95 to 99, when he had like 70% return a year, he was investing in like good businesses. And then, mm-hmm. um, or even like from like 99 to like right before the, the financial crash, he was even investing in pretty good businesses. I think I could be wrong about this, but um, anyways, somewhere between 95 and uh, 2004 ish area, he was investing in good businesses. And then I think it was a financial crash or something came along or it was a tech crash. I can't remember exactly, but um, basically what happened was all these companies were like, ended up crazy on sale. So he started going back to the more um, discounted pies approach. And uh, yeah. So he wants to get back to the more Charlie Munger, Phil Fisher type of investing, I believe. Yeah. So that's it for today's podcast. Um, that's just based on the uh, talking about diversification, why we don't diversify, uh, and maybe why you should or shouldn't diversify. Uh, if you have any questions, um, you can contact me or Jake just through our Instagram or email. Um, just money under the mattress dot podcast. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to add today, Jake? No, I think that was great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money Under the Mattress. If you have any questions about this episode, you can email us at moneyunderthematress.podcast at gmail.com. Everything discussed in this podcast is our opinion and should not be used as investment advice. This podcast is for your entertainment and education purposes only, and we hope that you enjoyed it.